Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. gardening season. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is my season. Uh, there's something about playing in the dirt, smelling the dirt, turning the dirt, and I don't know, just seeing things grow, making things grow that just, it's just good. All right. I like it a lot. And if you are even remotely familiar with gardening, you know that gardening in order to have a healthy and fruitful garden, you, it, it's going to take some work, isn't it? That's the reason a lot of people don't do it. It's a lot of time, it's a lot of energy, it's a lot of work. It requires diligence, it requires um, attention. You need to be out there in the garden just about every day doing something. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it's, maybe it's watering, it's weeding, it's, it's fertilizing, it's, you know dealing with the pests or putting on some fungicide. And uh, this is my garden. Uh, I get to show it off because uh, I'm the pastor and, 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 I, and I, can, I put the slideshows together. So uh, that's my garden. I, I, I love it. But if I don't get out there every day almost and do something in it, I'm not going to have much of a garden at all always out there doing something. At the end of last week, my garden looked fantastic. It looked great. And my wife and I, we started to enjoy some of the first fruits that some of the kids were out there picking sugar snap peas at last week's uh, Art of Marriage session at our house, and it was looking great. And then I, I went out to work in my garden on Monday morning on my day off. And uh, once you got up closer, you started to realize... Uh, everything wasn't so great. It looks great from a distance, but you get up close and I started to notice some squash bugs everywhere. Anybody familiar with squash bugs? I just want to squash them. Right? Squash bugs are bugs that will lay eggs uh, uh, mostly on your cucurbit plants. Those would be the, you know, the pumpkins and cucumbers and zucchinis and, and squash. And, and they have these little mouths that pierce the plant and they basically suck the life out of the plant and they lay the eggs, these little red crunchy eggs on the bottom sides of the leaves, usually. And uh, basically they just suck the sap out of the plants and it causes them to wilt and then turn yellow and die, and in very short order, I almost lost all of my squash plants just like that. That's how fast it happened. But some of them are making a comeback, praise the Lord. I have a couple plants that haven't given up. But uh, to treat these plants, uh, to treat these pests, it's a lot of work. I mean, I'm out there every day doing something. I've, I've sprayed, but what you really need to do is get out there, and you actually lift up the leaves and you look for eggs and you remove those eggs or you cut them out of that leaf or you, you pinch them or smash them, whatever. It's kind of gross, huh? Tape, duct tape. Yeah, you can get duct tape and take them off with that. But it's a lot of work. But if you don't do that, you're not going to have any squash plants left. So it can be very tedious getting rid of the pests. Now, in our God-designed marriage series, uh, we're talking about healthy, strong, and flourishing marriages. Uh, healthy and strong homes to make for a strong and healthy home. But did you know more homes are destroyed every year by tiny little invasive pests like termites than by fires? Little tiny invasive pests get work their way into your home, and before you know it, the house collapses. And the house collapses not on account of a catastrophe like a fire or a flood, but on account of something that goes undetected for a long period of time, like a termite or maybe a slow, weak, slow leak somewhere. 
And that's something of what we're going to look at today as we study our fourth building block called the care of marriage. The care of marriage. And this is a critical building block to lay because every marriage is going to experience conflict. If you haven't, you're an alien. You're not from this planet. Okay? Every marriage is going to experience conflict. And we have to uh, care for our marriage by handling that conflict properly, lest some pest like anger or unforgiveness creep into our marriages, creep into our homes, and gnaw away at the framework of our homes or suck the vitality out of our relationships. Marriages, I've been thinking all week, are a lot like gardens, or they're a lot like our homes. They, they require constant maintenance and attention. And you might not be able to get rid of every single pest that comes into your garden or into your home, but you can certainly exterminate enough to at least salvage your garden or salvage your home. And uh, first we've got to look at uh, uh, James 4, 1 through 3. We're, we're going to find the main source of conflict. Uh, you know, when I, have a, when I have pests in my garden, I've got, to, I've got to do some studying. I've got to figure out where these things are coming from, how to deal with them. So that's what we're doing today. James 4, 1 through 3. We're looking at the main source of conflict, and I'll give you a hint. The source of conflict has nothing to do with the color of your hair or your ethnicity or, or your, your oppression, right? In case you have red hair, or Irish blood, or maybe you're studying CRT, right? Um, the source of conflict is it's us. It's in us. Look at this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So I've always thought that was a great uh, passage for the prosperity gospel <laughs> the churches out there. Um, you ask with wrong motives. So, again, the source of conflict, just, just after Adam and Eve were joined together in marriage, the first marriage, it says they were, you remember this? They were naked and unashamed before God. They, before sin, they had total transparency. This was like the ideal relationship, total transparency. They were totally open with one another. They had perfect communication, communion, fulfillment, harmony. They were selfless. They, they, they loved each other. They were enthralled with one another. And their motives were pure. We could say they had perfect oneness in their relationship. However, after they sinned, what happened? Instead of being enthralled with one another and obsessed with one another, they became obsessed with themselves. Their focus, it says, went, they went inward. And they realized... They were naked. They started to cover themselves. They began to experience shame and guilt and fear and, and anger. They began to experience separation from God, separation from each other. I would even say they were separated from themselves. They didn't understand themselves anymore. And after God called them out of hiding and He asked them, who's responsible here? What did they start doing? Did they fess up and say, I did it. I'm sorry. I was wrong. For... No, they said... He, well, Adam, he pointed his finger at God and said, it's that woman you gave me. You did this. And Eve pointed to the snake, to the serpent. Neither one of them would fess up and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And sin brought the first conflict into the world right then and there in Genesis chapter 3. It was a, a pleasure, it was a desire to be like God. On Eve's part, James is very blunt when he says the source of our conflicts and quarrels today is due to the, the sin nature inside of us that we inherited from Adam and Eve. Paul echoes James in Romans 7. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I, I, I look at the law of God and I say it's good, but then I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. And he says, wretched man that I am. Any of you guys ever feel that way? 
The things that I don't do, I want to do. The things I want to do, I don't do. And I'm just a wretched man. Who's set me free from this body of death? Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit, we can get some victory. But we tend to think that our, the problem's never us. This is what the first thing that happens in a conflict. It's not me, it's them. Mm-mm, couldn't be me. It's their fault, right? It's, it's always someone else. But James says we need to consider ourselves first as the problem. By nature, we lust. James says you lust. Look at how many times he uses the word you there. You lust. You are envious. You desire. You love yourself. That's why there's conflict. You, you, don't, you won't get over yourself. You think you're God. You want to be God. You want to control everybody. Right? You want everybody to orbit around you. You want to be the center of the universe and get other people to orbit around you, and you'll manipulate people to do that. Only problem is, they're doing the same thing to you. <laughs> Trying to get you to orbit around them. Isn't this how we work the world? We can be so manipulative at times of people. Because we have these desires, we have these pleasures, and I want you to support those and, and fulfill those or else. And if you don't, if, if I don't have my expectations met, or I feel that you've, you know, you've, you've wronged me, well then, conflict, anger, I'm angry with you. Uh, the word pleasures, uh, or maybe your translation says desires or passions, this is a Greek word that's also behind our English word for hedonism, which is the belief that my personal pleasure and my happiness is the sole end or chief good in life. Isn't that how we naturally think? There's a way in which God has designed us for pleasure, yes, but not without obedience to God. Pleasures can be good or bad depending on our character. But when we, we live for our desires and they don't get fulfilled, our rights are violated, again, our, our expectations aren't met, it leads to conflict, it leads to anger. And anger does what? It pushes people away. Anger kills relationships. It destroys them. Sometimes our anger, it'll look like a simmering crock pot. Some of you guys are more like a crock pot. And sometimes anger is very obvious, isn't it? You blow up like a firecracker. But either way, it it's, it's pushes us apart, and, and uh, it's a result of our desires not being met. Someone hasn't bound down to our Godship, to use John Labar's term in Sunday school. Someone hasn't bowed down to us as God. Someone hasn't bowed down to us as Lord. Right? They're threatening my desires. Paul David Tripp says, when, when, where marriages always go wrong is when I want the right to set the rules by which this relationship will work. That's at the bottom of every marriage difficulty. I don't want to have to say I'm sorry. I don't want to serve you. And he says, that's taking God's position. That's writing my own law. Now I'm angry, not because you've broken God's law, but because you've broken my law. And he says, think about how much of our anger has nothing to do with God at all. It has nothing to do with breaking God's law. So he's saying many of our conflicts are not our spouse's problem. It's, it's our problem. That's where we've got to go to first. And one of the first questions we need to ask ourselves when that little, you know, that I like, I like to think of anger as like, it's an emotional light on my dashboard, right? The light is on, like in your car, anger, the anger light goes on. It's like, okay, what's going on? What's wrong? And I have to ask, is this, is this really something that requires, uh, like did someone really offend me? You know, does this require forgiveness? Or is this just me being selfish and not getting what I want? You know, ha- did they really sin against me or God, or do I just need to get over myself and quit playing God? Do I just need to repent? And I'll share a couple illustrations to help you think through this and what I mean by this. Um, uh, we can make a federal case. Some of you guys have done this. The flies on the walls in your house told me that you got mad at your spouse because they dropped their towel on the floor after they were done taking a shower. Or your wife didn't butter the toast to the margins of the bread. Or maybe you dropped your socks on the floor just beside the laundry basket. Right? 
We can make a federal case out of that. In our Art of Marriage series, they call that a dropper. A person who drops their towel or their socks on the floor. I can't believe I married a dropper. My dad was a dropper. I told myself I was never going to marry a dropper. Is dropping socks on the floor a sin? <laughs> no. What do I need to do in that case? When that anger light comes on, those socks aren't in that basket. What do I need to do? James says, humble yourself. Humble yourself, all right? It's not about you. All right, what if your what if your wife, you know, just a personal illustration here, squeezes the tube of toothpaste different than you? Or she cooks the eggs different than your mom cooked the eggs or something like that. You see, we can hide all these little uh, imperfections and I don't know, preferences before we get married, but as soon as you move in together, these things start to come out and you realize that these aren't really sin issues. These are just me trying to be God in someone else's life and I'm getting angry for nothing and over nothing. And so what we need to do in those situations, James says, is just humble yourself. He says in verse 6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Quit trying to be God. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. So you don't, don't insist on getting your way all the time because these little disconnects, whether they're communicated or not, they, they gnaw away at the framework of your marriage. They're gnawing away at your marriage and it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Some conflict is totally unnecessary and you just have to humble yourself and get over yourself. Uh, however, there are some legitimate sinful offenses that do occur in marriage. We do sin against one another, and we've got to learn how to respond properly to those. And so that's what we're going to look at now from Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. Um, whenever I think about caring for a relationship, I think of Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. It's a must-turn-to passage for both conflict prevention and conflict resolution. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul, I'll remind us, has already talked about all of the heavenly riches that we've been given in Christ. We've been called. We have this heavenly calling. We're eternally secure. We're forgiven. I mean, it's, it's everything. Like in Christ, we have a perfect standing before God. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he, he says, Therefore, because of who you are in Christ, now you need to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Uh, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And, and he'll, he'll go on to say how you've been... You've been given all of this power uh, by the Holy Spirit to actually do that. And what you need to do is you need to put off the old sin nature, the old man who you used to be before Christ, and you start to put on Christ. You put on new clothes, basically. So he'll say, like, put off lying, put on truth-telling. Um, verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Isn't that interesting? You wouldn't lie to yourself, would you? Uh, and we're members of one another, so why would you lie to each other? It'd be like lying to yourself. Isn't that awesome how we belong to each other? We should have the same care for one another. Um, be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from, from out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the needs of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, right, put off that, put on kindness to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, I'm just going to pull a few principles out of this regarding conflict prevention and resolution, and 
the, the first one is be wise with words. Just be wise with your words. Choose your words wisely. Verse 25 says to lay aside these old raggedy garments, these useless garments anyway, of lying and falsehood. Instead, put on a new, a new suit called truth. Because lying destroys relationships. You don't want to be friends with a liar, do you? Can you, you, can, you don't trust liars. However, truth tellers, you can have oneness with. Truth telling increases oneness. It increases transparency. Uh, verse 28 says to choose your words carefully. Don't use unwholesome words. Uh, we could say words that are rotten, words that cause your relationship to decay, words that suck the life out of your relationships. Paul says use words that edify. Basically, that's like a construction term. Words that build up. Words that speak life into your relationships. And, and he says, watch your tone. Be gracious. Use words that are gracious, not, not harsh. So you have to be really careful with your words. I, I tell couples in, in, in marriage counseling to remove these universal threats from their relationships. The, the universal threats of you always do this, or you all never do that, right? You always and you never. Just get rid of those. Those are totally worthless words. Get rid of those universal threats. Because no one always does something or always never does something. It doesn't help at all. Uh, get rid of the D word. Don't even, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I don't mean Dallas. Like the country song. Get rid of the D word. That D word doesn't even come up. Don't consider it part of your vocabulary. Um, there is a correlation between our words, the words that we use, and the health of our relationships. Imagine how many marriages would be saved if we were just wiser, if, if they were just wiser with their tongues. How many divorces started with just one spoken word, one hurtful word, and that word was never forgiven? And it led to bitterness and anger and envy and vengeance and divorce. James says the tongue is like a small spark. Remember that? It's just a small little spark. But you know what a spark can do, right? It can start a forest fire. So we've got to be careful with our tongues. Uh, the second principle out of this is to just keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. In our pride... This is the way we are. We want to prolong our anger with the hope of punishing someone. My anger, I'm just going to punish them. I'm going to withhold forgiveness, and they're going to, they're going to feel the pain for what they've done. Right? Deep down, you know, and I know, you want to strain out every last drop of justice that that person deserves that wronged you. But Paul says, that's not what, those, that's not what Christians do. The whole world does that. Christians are different. They don't hold grudges. They release people. They forgive. They, they bury the offense as soon as possible. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't go to bed angry. It'll ruin your, your night of sleep, and then it'll ruin your day tomorrow because you're going to wake up and realize, oh, I forgot I was mad at that person. Right? Today's going to be a great day. Oh, I forgot we were fighting. Just deal with it. Don't go to bed angry. If there's an issue, you deal with it immediately because if you don't, you let that anger, that the pest of anger creep into your garden, into the, into the garden of your marriage, and you're going to have an infestation on your hands that, that could be very difficult to get rid of, and it's going to cause a lot of damage. If, if I don't deal with these squash bugs, I ain't going to have a cucumber in my garden. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with it immediately. If you don't deal with the anger, it is a downhill spiral to all sorts of just evil influences. Paul says, don't give Satan a foothold, a toehold, right? All he needs is one little pinky toe to trip you up, and he'll do it too. Don't give the devil a foothold. 
In the same context of First Corinthians, or sorry, of forgiveness in Second Corinthians, Paul says, "You don't want to be ignorant of his schemes, of Satan's schemes. If you don't forgive, Paul says, we're not ignorant of his schemes. Basically, Satan will wreck your life. Your unforgiving spirit will give Satan a foothold in your life. He will wreck you. He will wreck your relationships. Unforgiveness." If undealt with, it's going to lead to bitterness, resentment, vengeance, hatred, ungratefulness, depression, despair, maybe even taking your own life. That's where it leads. And the longer that you withhold it, the harder it is to deal with. The harder it is to uproot that root of bitterness, like Hebrews 12 talks about. It's, it's an invasive pest, unforgiveness, it, it anger. It spreads prolifically. It'll suck the life and joy out of your relationships. It'll, it'll suck the life and joy out of your thought life. You'll find yourself dwelling on it all the time. It'll gnaw away at you spiritually. It will wreck you physically. You'll go to the doctor wondering what's wrong. Am I, is, is it me? And, and no, you need to let go of some grudge somewhere. Remember David? Soaking his couch with tears, and he said he just like felt like he was sapped, you know, because he was living in disobedience to God. That's what happens when we don't forgive. It causes a break between our fellowship with God. Most troubles, I mean, I mean, most people's troubles. This is I've heard several counselors recently. I've been studying this a lot, and they say most people's troubles would be solved or significantly diminished if they just understood what the Bible says about forgiveness. If they would just forgive. Let go of the grudges. Nearly all personal problems are related to unforgiveness in some way. That's where it starts. Unforgiveness, this is interesting to think about. This will also invoke parental discipline from our Heavenly Father. We're, we're always His children, right? But if we don't forgive, what's it say? Your Father in heaven won't forgive your transgressions. Now, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about fellowship between you and God. You don't forgive, it's going to impede your relationship with God. Because He's forgiven you so much, how could you not forgive others? Remember when Peter asked Jesus, he said, How many times do I have to forgive my brother? And he quantified it, didn't he? Is seven times enough? It's a good question, because back in the day, the, the rabbis would actually teach, well, you only had to forgive three times, and they took that out of an obscure verse in Amos, I think chapter 2, verse 4. And some couple, there's a few verses, you know, for three times and for four, I won't, you know, God was talking about uh, judging the nation of Israel. So that's where they came up with this concept that you, you only forgive three times. And so Peter, when he says seven times, he's saying, oh, wow, I'm being really generous. He thinks he's being really generous. Seven times, Jesus. What does Jesus say? Not seven, but 70 times seven, 490 times, which basically means don't keep count, Peter. You don't keep count. You don't set a threshold. You don't set limits. You forgive because you're commanded to forgive. You've been forgiven, now you forgive. Forgive as God has forgiven you. Basically, I think that means you forgive freely, generously, eagerly, totally, completely. You don't hold grudges, you refuse to. And to drive his point home, Jesus shared this story about a king and a servant. Remember this? Matthew 18 talks about a king who forgave one of his slaves like, trillion-dollar unpayable debt, which symbolizes what? The debt that we've been forgiven by God. And, and then that same slave turns around and he goes to a fellow slave who owed him, like, not even a fraction, if I can say that. I mean, like, 25 bucks, whatever, a month's wages, maybe. So you go from this unthinkable debt to, like, this little teeny tiny debt, and the slave won't forgive a former slave that debt. And so the king, in response turns back to that slave and he says, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, right? You were on your knees begging to be forgiven. 
released from this debt. And should you have not had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And then his Lord, moved with anger, hands him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My Father, my Heavenly Father, Jesus says, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. See, back then, they had such a thing that was called uh, a debtor's prison, where if someone wasn't paying their debt, they would go to prison and be given a menial task that they were paid to do, which it took forever, but they'd have to they'd pay off that debt in prison. That's the only thing they had, could do. It didn't work very well, I guess. What I was reading about, it didn't work very well for him, because it took forever, because he only made a little bit of amount. But the prison is a picture of what happens went to an unforgiving Christian. You go into prison mode. You go into your own prison. Anger and bitterness, hatred, right? And it's hard to get out of. The torturers are the, the, the rod of God's fatherly discipline of His children, who after being forgiven an unthinkable amount, refuse to forgive others. This is saying it's a, it's a sin not to forgive. Something to be repented of is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a sin. You have to repent of it so that your fellowship with God can be restored. And you can be set free. I've been, been studying this topic a lot lately, trying to find more systematic teaching on the, on the topic of forgiveness so that we can all think clearly about it. And, and I found it helpful to think of forgiveness in two ways. I don't go to either extreme. I think of it, it's helpful to think of forgiveness in two ways, both as covering and confronting. Covering and confronting. The first type I'm calling covering, cover an offense with unconditional, unilateral forgiveness. You just cover it. We could call it overlooking or covering. That's, you know, we're overlooking petty offenses. Basically saying, who cares? Right? Unconditional, unilateral means it only involves one person, me, and it's unconditional. There's no conditions met in order for someone to be forgiven. There's no confrontation. It's just immediate forgiveness from the heart without ever bringing it up to that person. And this is the forgiveness that I think we have to admit that we use this forgiveness the most, don't we? It, it doesn't even... We don't even bring it up. Someone offends you, what do you do? You get the shovel, you dig a hole, you take that offense, you throw it in the hole, you bury it. And you burn the map to where it's at. You bury the hatchet. And, and then you bury the handle to the hatchet too, so you're not tempted to take it out of the ground and use it. <laughs> bury the hatchet. Cover it up. Bury it. It's done. It's full. It's complete forgiveness. I'm not even going to mention it. I'm just going to move on. Isn't that what Christ did? This is Christ-like, guys. This is Christ-like. We follow in His steps. We absorb. Christ absorbed injustice and suffering. Peter says, Christ absorbed injustice and suffering. He's like a shock absorber. He absorbed it Himself. Was it right what people did to Him? No, but He absorbed it. He took it upon Himself. And Peter says, you follow in His steps. You do the same. You do the same. Absorb the injustice. I've learned that Bible teachers who define forgiveness as only a two-way interpersonal transaction between people. And, and there's a lot out there who do. There's some that you listen to, you think they're great pastors, and, and, and they, there's different mindsets here on this stuff. But if we define forgiveness as only a two-way transaction that's conditional based on that person's repentance, well, then those, those teachers will make a distinction between covering a sin and overlooking a sin. Right? So they'll say they'll admit that we have to overlook some things, but they'll say overlooking isn't the same as actually forgiving conditionally. And so um, I've got a few verses here that, where the Bible actually equates covering with forgiving because I think it's really inconsistent. To say covering isn't, or forgiving isn't the same as covering and overlooking. So, 
Um, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Okay, there's Hebrew parallelism there, where the transgression is equated with sin and forgiven with covered. Do you see that? It's saying the same thing two different ways. Covering is forgiving. You forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sins. Forgiving is covering, or overlooking, we could say. Forgave and covered are equated there. So when 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of sins, what's he talking about? Forgiving. Love forgives. Proverbs says, a man's good sense makes him slow to wrath, and the overlooking of wrongdoing is his glory. So people who are good lovers and people who are wise, they're forgiving people. They can bury offenses done against them. They can just dig a hole, throw the offense in the hole, bury it, and move on with their life, right? They keep, love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't demand payment. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 through 26, I think, speaks of this type of forgiveness. Uh, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Again, this isn't talking about judicial forgiveness and salvation. It's talking about fellowship with God. He's your heavenly Father. And you need to forgive or your fellowship with God is broken. While you stand praying. You see that immediacy there? While you stand praying... You can forgive while you stand praying. You don't even have to go anywhere. So I like to think of this as like a, a, just picture a man getting ready for his devotional time one morning. And he's sitting out on his, his patio and enjoying the cool morning summer breeze. And he's got his Bible in his hand and he's got a coffee cup there. And he's just getting ready to have some sweet fellowship with the Lord. And then he's got a grudge against someone. And God's saying, release the grudge if you want fellowship with me. Let go of it before you continue. I think that's what's going on there. That's a picture of that. Here's a man devoted, standing, praying before God, and God says, forgive. God says, forgive. Let go of it right then and there. Unconditional, unilateral forgiveness. If every offense required some sort of interpersonal transaction where I have to rebuke you and you have to repent and then I have to forgive you based on that repentance, that would become very wearying very quickly, very fast. We would be doing little else but confronting one another for petty grievances because we do it all the time. And this is why Defining forgiveness only as a two-way transaction would, I think, be a potentially disastrous mistake. It can produce more conflict than it avoids. Look, forgiveness should reduce conflict, not create it. It's, it can stir up strife. It can make relationships tedious and annoying, if I can say that. And it's virtually impossible. The chief effect of unconditional unilateral forgiveness would be what it does in the heart of the forgiver both setting it free from the prison of anger, bitterness, and grudges, and then also restoring fellowship with God. So, that's my take on unilateral, unconditional forgiveness. However, there's clearly times when it's helpful to think of forgiveness as something that is conditional and bilateral, more like a formal transaction that does take place between two people, where forgiveness is both sought and granted. And that's the, I don't know, fifth care response for your relationships. Confront by seeking and granting forgiveness. It's a bilateral thing, which means it takes place between two people. And it's conditioned upon repentance. Luke 17, 3-4 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And uh, that verse there just kind of reminds me of the reconciliatory process. That's a big word. 
reconciliatory process. Halfway through it, I thought I was done with it. Uh, <laughs> reconciliatory. I don't know how many syllables it is, but it reminds you of when you were little kids and you hurt your brother or your sister and your mom or your dad came to you and they said, what do you say? I'm, I'm sorry, right? And you, you don't want to say it, do you? Because it's hard. Adam and Eve couldn't say it. Mm-mm, it was all their fault. It was all, that, it was all you, God, or it was all Satan's fault. No, um, you've got to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me, and I love you. And then you hug each other, right? Isn't that what your parents made you do? They did me. Some of you guys are just out there sleeping. Anyway, those 12 words, though, I got four fingers. There's four phrases, 12 words. I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I love you. Those are 12 words that hold a marriage together. They hold a marriage together. They hold relationships together. But the reason we don't do it as adults is because it's hard. It was hard to do it when we were kids. But those 12 words are like a lethal pesticide to the pests that are trying to suck the vitality of our relationships. If you've offended someone, you, you offend your spouse, is it not proper to go to them with an apology and ask for forgiveness and say, I repent. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? It's proper. And then it's ideal for the offended party to know you've repented as they grant forgiveness. And it's ideal for the person who's been granted to know that they've been granted forgiveness. Because if I don't know that you've forgiven me, that's going to eat me alive too, isn't it? That's going to be hard on me. And I'll share a story with you in a little bit about uh, how that happened in one marriage. But uh, let's ask, when is this kind of forgiveness necessary, this sort of bilateral exchange? When's it necessary? Well, outside of the whole church discipline topic that we aren't going to get into today, I would say that this sort of formal exchange is necessary whenever you know it is. And you know when it is, right? Because it's usually a, a heated exchange followed by an icy silence, right? And you know got to make up. You know, you just know when it's needed. Okay, it's ideal after an exchange like that for some for a formal exchange of forgiveness to take place and not just forgive in the heart, even though you'll do that too. But if there's a breach in a relationship's oneness like that or maybe there's just a breach, there's just that goes on for a long period of time that doesn't seem to go away. I don't know why we don't have this oneness, we're not connecting. Um, there could be a repeated sin or destructive habit or tendency that just keeps causing a breach over and over. You've forgiven them unilaterally and unconditionally, but it just keeps happening, and you just think, boy, I just, we just need to deal with this. I need to confront this, uh, because this is, a, this is a habitual issue that needs to be taken care of. It needs to be addressed. I think you know when it needs to happen, but... Before you go to confront someone, here's some good advice from our Art of Marriage series. Ask this question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to confront them, or do I just need to let it go? Secondly, did I contribute to it? Do I need to repent? Is this all them, or is it partly my problem, too? Do I need to repent? Does there need to be mutual repentance in this thing? And more often than not, yes. You both need to seek and grant forgiveness to each other. Um, Check your motives. Am I going to, is this me trying to retaliate or am I trying to restore? Am I trying to punish my spouse or am I pursuing peace? I would pray about it. Forgive from the heart first. Um, Find the proper time to address it. Uh, Find the right time to do it, to bring it up. Speak soft and slow. Speak the truth in love. Uh, find something to affirm 
something that they said that was good, or maybe something that they did was good. You remember when Jesus addresses the churches in Revelation? He, t- he usually goes to them and says, this is what you're doing well. You guys are doing this well. And then he brings the rebuke, right? So he gives some positive affirmation before he gets into, okay, guys, we've got we've to deal with an issue here. So give some positive affirmation. Watch your body language. You know, don't, don't fold your arms and you know, be, be relaxed and make it mutual. Verbally, openly, and humbly admit your own faults and then seek each other's full forgiveness. God honors such repentance. Um, what if you confront, here's another question, what if you confront somebody properly and there is no repentance? What if they don't repent or... Maybe you aren't sure if their repentance is genuine. Well, I still think you're required to forgive them from the heart. And if formal reconciliation doesn't take place, that's okay. Just forgive from the heart and keep praying for them and keep praying for a tender heart towards that person. Don't let it eat you alive. Forgive, bury it, move on. And then what about justice? That's my favorite question. Because that's a question that I've wrestled with a lot. I love justice. I want justice in this world. I want every right to be made wrong. My mom called me just in, okay, which comes from justice. I love justice. I hate social justice. I like true justice. I want to fight in this world to show people what true justice looks like. But I think we've got to come to grips with the fact that some justices just aren't going to be made right this side of eternity. Some justices will not be made right on this side of Christ's return. And it's our duty as Christ followers, Peter says, to just suffer those wrongs gracefully. Just like Jesus did. Absorb it. Absorb it. And when you do, that's very winsome. It's winsome. Jesus took the wrath we deserved, right? He absorbed the punishment. Um, Stephen. How winsome of Stephen to, to say, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. As he's dying, they're stoning him to death, and he says that. Don't hold this sin against them. How many people saw that and said, what a weirdo. Who does that? How strange for someone to say that as they're being stoned to death. And um, instead of insisting that every right be made wrong, Robert Jones said in his book, Uprooting Anger, he said, we must learn to let him be the lawgiver, him be the recorder, him be the witness, the prosecutor, the judge, and the executioner. That's not my job. My job is to forgive. He calls us to trust in his perfect justice. His timing, His will, right? My job's to be like Christ and forgive and love my enemies, pray for my enemies, bless my enemies. And uh, in closing, I just want to—I want to use another story from the Art of Marriage series that we're going through, and uh, it's in this week's session. This is what we're going to watch tonight. There's a story about a, a couple named Tony. And Vanita, and in a dark time of depression, Vanita did some things that really hurt Tony, and they didn't say what it was. It must have been pretty significant because uh, they didn't mention it. And for a year and a half, they tried moving on after this event, after this situation, and it just wasn't working. They tried moving on, it wasn't working. Ever since Vanita hurt Tony, everything was always her fault. It was her weakness. It was her problem, her selfishness. So the reason the relationship wasn't working was because of this thing that she did in the past, right? She's always the problem now, and she felt like she didn't have a voice anymore. How could she, right, with this guilt weighing over her head? I mean, it's like we we can use some offense. It's kind of like a carrot in front of them, right? I mean, it's just like we always use it against somebody if they wrong us. I'm going to keep this one, right? So when we get in a fight, I can bring it back up. Silence you. 
Well, that's what was going on. And, and she was always the problem. She didn't have a voice. Obviously, when you're like that, what do you do? You shut down and you disconnect. And that's what she did. About that time, though, Tony goes to this men's retreat. And God hits him in the head with a two-by-four. And he says, yes, Tony, she screwed up. But you can't blame everything on your wife anymore. And so he went home from this men's retreat with a big welt on his head, right, from the divine two-by-four. And he says, Vanita, I forgive you for some painful things that have happened. I'm sorry that my pain has turned into anger and that I've abandoned my responsibilities to love you and nurture you and help you learn how to love me. Please help me change to love you unconditionally and to nurture you and teach you in a tender manner as my responsibility requires. I'm sorry it took me so long to realize this. Will you forgive me? That's what it took to heal that marriage. There had to be a formal exchange. The marriage wasn't healing without a mutual repentance and forgiveness that set her free from the guilt that was shutting her down. She needed to know Tony forgave her completely, 100%. wasn't going to hang over her head anymore. And then she was able to open up again. And then he needed to get rid of the bitterness in his heart and ask for forgiveness for that as well. And that, it's just such a beautiful story about, about marriage being like a garden. This marriage was just infested with pests. And they, the, the, the anger and the bitterness, the guilt, the shame, it was just sucking the life out of this couple's relationship. But forgiveness caused it to rebound and made it a fruitful, healthy marriage all over again. It's a really neat thing. If there's any, you know, here's my challenge. Every week with this marriage series, I've been giving out a challenge, right? And my challenge to you this week is pretty simple. We've been talking about it this whole time. If there's any pest <laughs> uh, present or past that's causing a breach in the oneness of your marriage, deal with it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give Satan a foothold. Release the grudge in your heart, both unconditionally, unilaterally, let go of it before God. And then you get with your spouse and you, you work it out formally. Because you both need to know forgiveness has been sought, forgiveness has been granted. It's a mutual thing. In three words, kill the pests. Okay? Or you won't have a garden. So Lord, thanks so much for your forgiveness. Of us, you have been that king to us who has forgiven us a debt that we could never, ever repay, even if we worked 14 lifetimes to try and pay for it. Lord, you are good. You have forgiven us. You loved us. And I pray that, Lord, you would make us more like you, and that we would be loving and forgiving of others also. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.